Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm one of your hosts, Nick Hayden. And I am the other host, Timothy Deal. Welcome to episode four. We are in the year 1952. And the movie is Singing in the Rain. So let's just get straight to this thing. Tell us what's going on in 1952. Okay, it's time for our Wikipedia rundown, folks. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. For Moses, he knows his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. Ten years have passed since the last episode. Since then, America has gone through World War II and the McCarthy hearings. The latter, of course, is a big deal for Hollywood, particularly. But at this point, the studio system is slowly dissolving. Uh, there's a, a certain case that resulted in the Paramount Decree in 1948, a Supreme Court case, I should mention. And basically, the result of it was, I'm just not going to go real deep into this, but the result of it was it was an antitrust decision that forced studios to sell off their exhibition businesses. Because previously, they had owned both the... The distribution and the showing and everything. Yeah. The, the whole stream. The whole thing. Production, distribution, and exhibition. The three branches of the film industry at that point. At this point, it's like, okay, that's too much. You got to break it up. And so basically, the studios had to sell off their... They had to choose something to, to divorce themselves of, and they all chose the exhibition thing. But it was kind of a slow process. Some of them did it right away. Other ones kind of held off, tried to pursue other legal courses of action. The dissolution wouldn't be complete until Lowe's Theaters suffered ties with MGM in 1954. So about two years after this movie. Yes. And this movie is actually an MGM movie, so that is relevant to this particular So this one. is one of the, in the last days of the studio system for MGM. Right. I might have said previously that the studio system lasted until like 1960, so that's not entirely accurate, I guess after looking into it again here i know one reason i said that is because i know american new wave kind of starts in the 60s so from 1954 on hollywood the film industry is kind of in this in-between period they haven't found a new mode yes a, a new modus operandi and i will i should also acknowledge again we're talking hollywood here specifically i know there's interesting things going on in european films at this time probably also in japanese films and if we get more into those markets and future movies we'll talk about it yes um but we're talking hollywood here because this is a hollywood movie but there's another big deal against movies at this time too that's right television Television had been a rising source of competition for a while. It had been in development as early as the 30s, I want to say. Probably as soon as people were developing broadcasting, they were trying, okay, we can do sound. Can we do pictures? Can we do picture? Yeah, exactly. Real and mirrors, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, the Depression and the World War II really slowed that. Following the end of World War II, it really started taking off. Regularly scheduled programming had begun on NBC in 1944. Some of those sources I was looking at considered one of the first big TV season's first full set of shows began in the fall of 1948. Okay. That was when Milton Berle, who became the first TV star, he's mm-hmm. a, he was a comedian. He'd been around for a little bit, but not super successful. So he's like, might as well try TV. Why not? Why not? <laughs> not going to hurt. And he really took off there. By 1952, our year here, we're, uh, we're, we're talking about shows like I Love Lucy, Dragnet, The Ed Sullivan Show, and What's My Nine. See, things that still... What's My Line. <laughs> things that you still know instantly, like, that's classic TV. Yeah. I mean, they're like, household in, names. They're household names, even still. I mean, they were run on Nick and Knight when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. So that's the environment we're in right here. So, of course, how this film decided to compete with this? Two words, color and spectacle. 
1952, seven out of the top ten grossing films were in color. And as a comparison, from our last episode back in 1942, only one of the top ten was in color. Because color film had been around for a while, since the mid-30s. But it's expensive. Very expensive. So why do it unless, oh, we got there's, it. there's black and white TV, but... They don't have color TV Color yet. was the first 3D. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. And right beside that spectacle, uh, of course, besides the usual like big picture kinds of stuff with musicals, adventure movies, and all that stuff, 1952 also marked the debut of Cinerama. In fact, the one of the top movies of the year, number two, according to at least one list I looked at, was the documentary This is Cinerama, which showed off. It's a widescreen process. Basically, they would film with three cameras simultaneously, and then it would be projected with three projectors on a giant domed screen. Okay, like IMAX is now. I mean, yeah, I mean uh, like an early forerunner of IMAX. Right, exactly, an early forerunner of it. There were downsides with it. It wasn't a seamless sort of thing. You kind of see like little differences in light on the where the seams of, yeah. of, of the different cameras and the projectors were. Also, the curved screens are neat because they kind of are more immersive in a sense, but they also have a downside. Even today when they try to do like curved screen TVs, mm-hmm. they have this downside as opposed to flat ones where like you really need to be in a certain position to get the best view of it. If you're off on the side or something, it looks a little off. But anyway, so yes, this was a, a forerunner and the success of Cinerama would inspire many other copycats like CinemaScope, VistaVision, and eventually it would move away from doing the three camera thing to just having longer framed film yeah so widescreen still not a thing not a thing yet although it, it is on the horizon okay so what other we watching sing in the rain yep. what other uh, big films are going on in this year well the top grossing film and i'll have to admit put an asterisk with, with this i've been referring to wikipedia for my listing of top 10 films for the years uh, so far when I was looking more deeply to this one, I've seen discrepancies in different sites online. The numbers had a different top 10 list than what oh, I was okay. seeing elsewhere. So I don't know how accurate this is, but at least one of the top grossing movies of the year was The Greatest Show on Earth, a circus movie by Cecil B. DeMille. Who likes spectacle. Who likes his <laughs> spectacle. So lots of actual circus acts with the Ringling Brothers um, or Barnum & Bailey Circus. I forget which one it is. That movie also wound up winning Best Picture, although modern critics consider it one of the least deserving Best Picture winners <laughs> in Oscar history. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, other notable things from the Oscars this year, uh, director John Ford, who is known for his, his westerns. He won Best Director for The Quiet Man, which actually was set in Ireland, but okay. still involves John Wayne. <laughs> And then uh, Best Actor went to Gary Cooper for High Noon, which is a classic in the Western genre. Actually, my other nominations for this week's episode, if we had, if Nick hadn't already seen Singing in the Rain, yeah. which when he said he hadn't was like, you gotta watch Singing in the we Rain. gotta do that one. Yeah. Uh, but my other nominations were The Greatest Show on Earth and High Noon. Have you seen either of those? I've seen High Noon, mm-hmm. and it is a classic Western suspense Really interesting. You know, it's interesting. I've not actually seen that many westerns, even though like my grandpa was always watching westerns on Sundays. So I think I've seen bits of lots of I don't know bits of the good of ones or not. But we just sure. Yeah. Well, we'll get to a western later yes, on this season. season. Eventually. Well, not soon, but eventually. Eventually. Yeah. I've not seen the greatest show on earth, so I've been very curious to see if that is as mediocre as <laughs> the modern critics say. <laughs> So, but we're talking about seeing in the rain today, which I had not seen. So tell us a little bit if for anyone else who has not seen it, besides the song everyone knows, what's right. this movie about? Singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, we're happy again. We'll walk down the lane with a happy 
This probably is one of the most recognizable movies of the season. I think we've said before, it's the one that said, oh, you haven't seen that? Yes. Or to Nick. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you haven't, no shame. This is a podcast for people who haven't seen these movies yes. and want to know more about them. So Singing in the Rain is directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan, starring Gene Kelly, the dancer and singer, as well as Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds. It is a musical romantic comedy set in the midst of Hollywood's transition from silent films to talkies in the late 1920s. Gene Kelly is Don Lockwood, a former vaudeville performer turned stuntman turned silent film star. Donald O'Connor plays his best friend slash sidekick slash music accompanist, accompanist Cosmo Brown. While escaping his fans in a movie premiere, Don encounters a beautiful young woman named Kathy Selden, played by Debbie Reynolds. In classic romantic comedy fashion, Don and Kathy are quickly attracted to each other, although their egos briefly get in the way. We won't go into the details about that here. It, just enjoy it. It's, yeah. it's, it's good. It's just fun romantic comedy stuff. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, the sudden rise of sound in film halts production on Don's latest silent film so that it can be converted into a talkie. Trouble arises when Don's longtime leading lady, Lena Lamont, a ditzy diva whom Don can't stand, proves unable to make the transition to talking pictures, partially because of her nasally Brooklyn accent. What's wrong with the way I talk? What's the big idea? Am I dumb or something? Don and his friends come up with the idea to save the movie by turning it into a musical, but they will have to overcome the conniving legal machinations of Lena Lamont to do so. And... The movie is far more entertaining even than that summary. Yes, yeah, we're skimming over all the musical stuff because we're yeah. just giving you the, the bare yeah. bones of the plot here. No spoilers. That's right. The format is color, of course, and glorious technicolor, as they would say. The screen ratio is still Academy Standard. Looks very 4x3-ish, very similar. Length is 103 minutes or 1 hour and 43 minutes. Longest movie I think we've done so far. Yes, if I remember right. The music is worth noting that the original conception of this movie was the producer, Arthur Freed, wanted to showcase songs that he wrote and his fe- one of his fellow songwriters, uh, Nacio Herb Brown, when they, wrote, when they were first getting started in the film business, writing songs for musicals for MGM around 1929 through 1939. So the church bells will be ringing, and I'll march with my mom. So given that task, the screenwriters decided, well, let's set the movie in that period of time. And it makes a lot of sense. There's just two new songs written for this movie. One was Moses Supposes and the other one is Make Him Laugh. Although Make Him Laugh has been noted to be highly borrowed from a previous Irving Berlin song called Be a Clown (laughs) from a Freed produced musical. But it's not one he wrote. And when Irving Berlin heard it like being performed, he was like, who wrote that? And Freed was like, um, um, uh, I didn't, you know, let's, uh, let's go off the lunches. <laughs> nice. So a lot of fun music here though. Yes, absolutely. And this is part of the show when we now ask, well, who cares? Why is it well known? And let me just say, before we get to this part, once you watch it, you understand, <laughs> but, <laughs> but Tim, when it first came out, did people like it as much as they do now? Well, it was a modest hit. Again, my top 10 lists I was looking differ on, on whether this made the top 10 of the year or not. It certainly made the studio its money back. Although 
musicals were also very expensive. MGM was committed to doing musicals. That this is what they were known for. Okay. And one source I, I read said that uh, at this point, MGM was like 25% of its movies were musicals. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Like that, this was part of their core identity. They really liked cultivating this prestige. Downside was that sometimes the the nets, the profits, weren't quite as high. It was like high investments and diminishing no. returns yeah. over, as the 50s went on. But it was a modest success financially. Critically, critics loved it then and now. It currently has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes with 72 reviews. That's impressive. That is very impressive. I don't think very many movies maintain their uh, 100% rating for super long. No. It's hard not to like this movie. It's true. It's true. And we'll get to that. Yeah. But it was only nominated for two Oscars, something that was because the prior year, the musical An American in Paris swapped the Oscars. So politics. Yeah. Some <laughs> that you don't tend to like reward movies or the producer. I mean, it was the same production team, Arthur Freed. Okay. Gene Kelly was also involved in that okay. one. So it's like, yeah. It's good, but we already did this. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that Academy Awards have always been kind of, it's a popularity contest as well as anything. And yeah. they, there's some politics. Involved. The time it comes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but did, I mean, people love it. Did it influence a lot of stuff? Did it make a difference? Not right away. A lot of sources I looked at indicate that studios were going to uh, Broadway more during this time, following this for their musicals, rather than Singing in the Rain as a wholly unique, it was made for a movie musical. Yeah, it was not stolen from somewhere else. Right. uh, Except for the guy's song. Yes, except for (laughs) Right. I mean, I know it was inspiration for movies down the road. The creators of La La Land, the 2016 musical, Mm -hmm. said it was an inspiration for them. And of course, there are references. It definitely entered the pop culture consciousness. Oh, yeah. Everyone has seen Dancing in the Rain, Singing in the Rain, and the Umbrella, and the Light Pole. and Yeah. The movie has been referenced, like, specifically referenced in movies like Crimes and Misdemeanors, one of Woody Allen's movies. And Silver Linings Playbook. And then the song itself, which is not original to the movie, but everyone knows, knows it, from it from this movie. movie now. It's in North by Northwest and Die Hard <laughs> and What About Bob and many, many more. <laughs> Die Hard. Yeah, I, d- I don't remember where, but that's, that's like, awesome. I saw it listed somewhere. Huh. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. By the time Gene Kelly appeared on The Muppet Show, part of the, sh- the story in that episode was that he'd sung Singing in the Raid so many times he didn't want to do it anymore because he felt he'd never do it as good in the movie. But of course, he wound up singing it anyway. It's the Muppets. The, it's the Muppets. They're <laughs> insistent. And I had in my head that this, because oftentimes The Muppet Show would make their backstage story based on actual things that the guest was wanting to do. Yeah. So I was wondering how accurate that was, if that was really Gene Kelly, how Gene Kelly felt about the song at that point. Yeah. I couldn't find confirmation on that either way, but if anything else makes for an entertaining episode. It does. Just singing, singing in the Beyond that, like we said, this is a super well-known. It was one of the very first 25 films selected by the United States Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry back in 1989 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It is on several AFI, American Film Institute, lists, including The 100 Movies, it ranked number 10, 100 Laughs, ranked number 16, 100 Passions, Romance, number 16, On their 100 songs list, Singing in the Rain, the song, ranked number three. 
Make Him Laugh ranked number 49, and Good Morning ranked number 72. This wasn't one of their TV specials, but they did do a list of 25 musicals, and it ranked number one on that list, as well as uh, on their 100 Movies 10th anniversary. They did another version of their 100 Movies list, and that time it ranked number five. I mean, think about that. It's ranked high in just movies, laughter, romance, musical. I mean, just... Yeah, it is is high up there. The film magazine Sight and Sound listed it in their list of the top 10 greatest films in both 1982 and 2002, ranked at number four and 10, respectively. On Empire's 500 greatest movies of all time list in 2008, Singing in the Rain ranked at number eight. And fans of the film include the famous French film director Francois Truffaut, film critic Pauline Kael, who is a very prickly film critic, but she said it was just about the best Hollywood musical of all time. And film critic Roger Ebert did one of his great movies essays about it, and he called it a transcendent experience, and no one who loves movies can afford to miss it. I think I would agree. I mean, that's high praise, but... I think I'd agree with him, actually. I, I, As you'll hear in a second and we go through our initial reactions, I was like, why have I not seen this movie? Dancing and singing in the rain So why have you? What, what, what is your history with it? Uh, my history is, I don't know. It's just, I knew about it, but never, I guess never picked up, never thought about picking up. Just like, oh, it's some musical they're singing about the rain. Like, it's a famous thing you reference, but it doesn't really tell you much about the movie. Yeah, that's a I mean, point. it's just like, oh, they're dancing and they're singing in the rain. Okay, so it's just. Is that all? <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's no plot. There's no idea of just how, I don't know, ridiculous, how wonderfully just joyous this movie is. So that's all That's all I knew about it, yeah. Well said. I, I don't remember exactly when I first saw this. I want to say it was after, it was post-college. Because before college, I didn't really have a huge fondness for musicals. That's something I inherited from my dad, kind of this like, oh, musicals are kind of silly and all, yeah. all the, that kind of attitude. In college, I met people who actually enjoyed them, and I started kind of getting into it myself. I, I feel like it was somewhere in between college and film school when I finally saw this, So, but that's still like oh, well over 10 years ago. So it was really fun to revisit this. Well, because I, I realized that most of my movies either I watched because like someone I knew, mainly parents or friends, thought it was great, or it was just modern. I didn't purposely dig out much old stuff on my own. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have anyone who was like running around saying, oh, you got to watch. I talked to my parents about it. And they're like, I'm like, you got to watch this. They're like, oh, it's good. I'm like, no, it's great. And you go watch it. So they might watch it now. Cool. So. Cool. Well, shall we listen in and see what we thought? We, we've been gushing already. Yes, already. It. So let's hear what we heard, thought about immediately after finishing it. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. First off, it's a crime I haven't seen this. I hadn't seen this before. I did not expect it to be so wonderfully meta. And it just like effortlessly moves from all the different layers of scenes and singing and surreal dance scenes and humor vaudeville stuff. And it's just, just a celebration of that sort of like, you know, he starts with saying dignity above all. But that's not like he's making the whole movie says, nope, doesn't matter. <laughs> it's the complete opposite of last week. I feel like this is the kind of movie that American kids can 
and in some arguments should grow up with because there's just so much. I mean, it does get kind of long. Some of these scenes, like the the Broadway inside Broadway inside Broadway, whatever <laughs> that was, that that got a little long. But there was still kind of a story going on. But anyway, I love Cosmo. He's just so funny. <laughs> and uh, the tap dancing is so entertaining. And it was obvious to me how crazy much skill there was involved in producing a production like that. I think it's worth knowing, and I'm glad to have finally witnessed it. And it was dang funny. Yeah, I really liked this. I was surprised. I, I've heard the music before in various places, but like Nick said, I am shocked. I had not seen this before. I mean, come on, people. Why didn't you educate me? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I really liked the storyline, too. I liked the music. I liked the story. The romance was fun. I had just seen Downton Abbey's newest film, which was about a little bit about making movies in this time period and changing from the silent films to the talkies. So it echoed that a lot. I mean, there was even a scene in there about this woman who she couldn't speak. um, So somebody had to do her voice, uh, which was exactly like this. Yeah. So I, I really, I really enjoyed this. It was very interesting to see a movie about a movie being made. So, Tim, we loved it then. I think we still enjoy it. Yes. I, yes. <laughs> that has not changed. That has not changed <laughs> since we watched it. Right. So, what's most stuck with us? I know, at least for me, one of the things, I mean, there's a lot of it. Two things I think really stick with me. Uh-huh. One is that it's just effortless in its physicality, in its singing, in its humor. It just flows. Mm. And I think that lends to the second thing, which is just... Is fun to watch. It is. It's just a lot of fun it's just, to watch. I mean, it really, it's kind of like a just a celebration of movies and dancing and singing and I mean, if you get you know philosophical life and you know, <laughs> well, certainly of uh, Hollywood, Hollywood or, yeah. of of film so, culture, oh, like our spectacle and almost just like everything's bigger than normal. Yeah, and it's infectious. Mm. It really is, and I think that really comes to the cast. The cast is phenomenal. They are. This. Yeah, it almost feels effortless, like the the amount of fun and joy that they're... I'm sure it's not, but... Well, no, it's not at all. Actually, like, if you hear some of the -the behind-the-scenes stories, it was... Some of it was quite grueling. During the Sing in the Rain sequence, Gene Kelly actually had, like, a 100-degree fever at the time. (laughs) Wow. And um, Debbie Reynolds, she was 18 when she made this movie. Really? Yeah, she'd had a little bit of screen experience, but she was still very much the newbie on the field, especially when it came to dancing. And the Good Morning song apparently took, like, four... 14 hours to film, and by the end of it, her feet were bleeding. Well, because there's long shots. I mean... It is very long shots. I mean, they don't they don't cut a lot, so you gotta get it right. I mean, and that's yeah. what's so impressive, because the dancing is great, the humor is, like, perfect timing. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of physicality. I mean, you get a sense that... I mean, it is a movie, but in some ways, it's like a live show in, this, in the communication of motion. Hmm. There's not a lot of cutting. It's not like a music video or anything. There's a lot of just putting you there and communicating that sort of sense of like 
no, they're really, really good at this. Yeah. No, the people who made this, they knew how to film dance sequences and mm-hmm. make them interesting and having the camera dance along with the dancer in some ways. Yeah. Like, one, you want to have a nice wide shot. You want to be able to see, like, there are times when you want to see the dancer's feet. Yep. So you do these nice full body things. Then there are other moments, like in the Sing in the Rain sequence where you can actually zoom in where, like, he's uh, he's just underneath the water spout and it's just splashing yeah. on him. It makes it feel effortless and infectious, the the spirit of they're do- doing this. Well, the Make Him Laugh song. I mean, he's just talking and, and Cosmo, the sidekick, is just doing this piano thing and it just escalates. Make him laugh, make him laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad said be an actor, my son, but be a comical one. They'll be he starts singing because that's what you do in a musical. Uh-huh. But then it just moves into just a series of Looney Tune-esque scenes, but like they're not quick cut. Like they're really impressive walking back and forth and jumping and run. I mean, yeah, that I mean, was that was also another exhausting sequence. Oh, that, from sure. what I've heard, it was. It was. I think he ended up in the in the hospital for it, like the day after or something because he was so practically killing himself for this. This and oh. it's it's so much fun and it's very impressive. He actually won a Golden Globe, Donald O'Connor, for this movie because yeah, he committed to it wholeheartedly. Yeah. Again, I think that's what sticks with more. It just is fully itself. You're just you're just loving it. The the humor seems timeless. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't seem like oh, that's fifties humor. You know, it's like yeah, and it, it is a, a spectacle to watch too. It like, is. I love the the use of color is is interesting because like all the the normal scenes are very you know realistic lighting, kind of like what you see in the day. But then sometimes when they would do some of the numbers. Like, just the colors are so vibrant and Mm -hmm. popping, and they were never afraid to do that kind of stuff. Do you ever watch the, I've talked about it many times, Errol Flynn's Robin Hood? Mm -hmm. Everyone's dressed in primary colors and that, and it's just because it's a very lush version of Robin Hood. And they know how, like, you're talking about, they can move back and forth between, like, the normal and then the bright. And then when they do the the Broadway scene, Uh dream sequence, which we've mentioned might go on a little long, but it's also very impressive just artistically, just... Mm -hmm. It feels very much in that sort of over-the-top Broadway yeah. style. It was a case where, for me, having seen it before and knowing what to expect, I, I did kind of enjoy it a little more the second time. I remember the first time also kind of feeling that, like, okay, we're getting away from the story here. <laughs> We've been away from the story for a while. But they know that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you can just kind of sit back and relax it and enjoy it more the second time. And it, it is quite fun. I mean, it's, it is kind of bizarre this like imagining inside of uh, with a dream and yeah it's it's but it, it is still stylistically quite interesting and i guess the I, I don't know i don't mean honesty necessarily but the fact so we won't spoil a lot because it's people making a movie and inside the movie then there's other things going on so there's several layers of what uh-huh. you call meta but it never gets sort of tongue-in-cheeky no, it, it's very not honest isn't the right word, but it's very just authentic. Yeah, authentic is a good word. And actually, yeah, we can kind of transition to another topic I want to talk about: yeah. the historical relevance of mm-hmm. this, because this is this is a movie made by a Hollywood studio that's on the verge of transition to another period of movie making history. Yeah, and they're making a movie about a big a transition, previous transition, a previous transition. And there were a lot of people on the the set for this movie that would share stories and like, yeah, I remember when we had to get, they just kind of like shake their fists at having to do this whole stupid conversion to sound thing. <laughs> and they think of it as a big nuisance. Yeah. And, uh, but they, they have such a kind of tongue in cheek, not tongue in cheek cause it's not like a cheeky thing, but it's like, yeah, an honest, like, yeah, this is what it was like. It was <laughs> crazy. Now lean. Look, here's the mic. 
right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. I'll try it again. She is dumb. Oh, she'll get it, Dexter. Look, Lena, don't worry. We're all a little nervous. The it was day. it was a big transition. It was having to put microphones in weird places so that you could pick it up, and the technology was still very being very new and trying to figure out how to how to utilize it. But yeah, talking about the, like the other similarities. So I mentioned earlier, Lowe's was the theater company that was oh, yeah. part of MGM. Well, in the Broadway sequence, one of the signs that's light up is a Lowe's sign. Okay, yeah. So you can see Lowe's, and so it's like one of those like touchstones of the time period that this was from. And I think talk having that historical transition basis to this whole story, you know, like they're converting from silent to talkies. I think adds something to it because suddenly it's rooted in this history, but it's not like dry or anything. But it just yeah. gives a sense of like a little bit of weight to it. This. You know, everyone understands transitions. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it serious or anything, but just adds a little, it's, it's not just fluff. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's been plenty of movies before about show business or let's put on a show and that kind of stuff. And considering that it is show business people making a story about being in show business, they could come off as pretentious or, or off-putting or, you know, a little too self-glamorizing, yeah. you know, if done the wrong way. And the fact that this doesn't, that it kind of has this sense of humor about... It pokes fun at all the sort of Hollywood star tropes. Yeah, movie stars, studio executives being... Some people say that the, actually the producer RF was kind of a, a loving poke at Arthur Freed, the producer okay. of this movie, R.F. Arthur Freed. It sounds okay. a little, you know, yeah. There, yeah. there might be some gentle ribbing there. But yeah, like diva, superstars, the... Uh... Or, or even the fact that uh, Donald Lockwood, he tries to act like he's his star, but he was just this goon, basically. He just yeah. happened to get there. You yeah. Know? yeah, and like there's a rivalry between, because Debbie Reynolds' character is also a, a wannabe actress, and you know some of their ego early on is like this actor's rivalry thing. It's like, yeah, I don't really go to movies. I'm interested in like Shakespeare. Yeah. And then she turns out later she's actually like a showgirl. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's very self-aware and not in like an ironic way, but like, yeah, much more authentic. Okay, we can poke fun at ourselves here. But at the same time, and this is a, a crazy thing, in the, the scene where Gene Kelly is basically wooing her, yeah. he takes her into this empty soundstage and turns on lights, sets the scenery, turns on a, f- a little bit of fog, turns on the wind machine, and basically showing how movie making, on, on one sense, you could kind of take this as a Rorschach test, in one sense it shows how movie making is very artificial, but if you're able to kind of suspend that disbelief, it also weaves a spell. It's like watching how... Like you know, magic tricks, like you know how it works, but then really good magicians you do, and you're still like, I know how it works, but it's amazing. It's still impressive. Yeah. In some ways, in one, it's an illusion, but at the same time, it's also an art. Like mm-hmm. a painting doesn't become any less amazing just because it's just splotches of paint spread across a canvas. Yeah. It's amazing because of the skill and technique and the fact that it can weave that kind of spell is kind of remarkable. And the whole movie knows, I mean, it's all about showing you the pieces and you being taken in by it anyways. Yeah. I mean, that's, everyone knows I'm a big Muppet fan. That's was always Jim Henson's philosophy. Mm-hmm. He loved letting people in on some of the, the secrets behind the puppetry. Well, I think that's why the Muppet movie, the first one, is one reason so great. Yeah. It, it has this 
self-awareness, not in like, oh, it's in the silly kind of way. And like, a, I mean, it's a fine line being self-deferential, but not self-denigrating. Yeah, yeah. But, and uh, this movie that you does make that fun perfectly. because you love it, yeah, not because there's something wrong with it. That's right. That's right. I think La La Land has some of this. I guess. Have you seen it? I have not I've seen, seen it. it. Gosh, I should have asked her about it. I have not seen it. I looked it up a review of it today because I was trying to remind myself what it was like, and it has it definitely falls along some of these lines. Now I read a world review of it, and they kind of felt like the lifestyle it was glamorizing is maybe not a great lifestyle, which. It's true. And even back in 1950s Hollywood, yeah, there was certainly a share of scandals and probably unhealthy living back then. But for those of us who love telling a story through stage, through microphones, through what, you know, yeah. what technical things have you, there's still something enchanting about it. Yeah. But I'm content. The angels must have sent you. got time for questions i think it is time for our questions so who's asking for us today i think i asked first last time okay. so you go ahead so just a general question what do you think the future of the musical is oh in 2022 yeah i mean this is 70 years ago mm-hmm. we've had some musical sense la la land everyone's while you get one you had lame is i mean but it's not on the radar really no it's and what yeah i don't know just I just want to hear your thoughts. It doesn't have to be profound or anything. Sure. But. It's a hard question. I mean, it certainly still has a place in Broadway. Yes. That, that Broadway has not died by any means. No, I mean, Hamilton shows that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, even on Broadway, it's not every day that, that you get a Hamilton no. that comes around that, that gets a lot of... But there's always something new on Broadway. Attention. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. Because it does seem like even things like La La Land are more of a flash in the pan. They become known because they are unique. Now, I say that also acknowledging there was also uh, The Greatest Showman. That actually went off really, that's true. That's a, That one went off and people love that thing. I mean, it took a little while before like word of mouth spread and people were going back for re- repeat viewings. It still seems to be a hard sell with Hollywood executives because it doesn't come around very often. And... Um, but it'd be neat to see more of it. And also, especially the ones, the musicals that are made for the movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, Broadway adaptations are fine, but again, you're inherently changing something. Yeah. When you make something that's originally designed for the screen, yeah. something special could happen. See, I think Grace Showman makes me think that if they would make good ones, people would love them. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think it's the musical that would turn people off. I think it's just the creators have to know how to get the the song and dance. Yeah. Right. Well, and and also just attract the audience that having an audience. I mean, it's interesting. West Side Story was, I mean, Steven Spielberg remade West Side Story. And if anyone, you know, could bring the attention to that, you would think it would be him. But it didn't get a huge audience. And part of me feels like that was uh, an attitude of like, does this really need a remake? Yeah. So I think I think having original stuff might actually be a better route to go for. And this is not a story school. (laughs) <laughs> but it's interesting. TV shows would do musical episodes every once in a while. That's I mean, true. Grey's Anatomy did. Once Upon a Time did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buffy Vampire Slayer, I think, did way back when. And they tend to be very well received by the fans. It's something fun and different to do. I think if you made a good musical, I think people would eat it up. But okay, 
Yeah, give me both of your questions. Oh, okay. Explain to me Singing in the Rain remade with Muppets. <laughs> um, well, of course, Kermit the Frog would have to take the Gene Kelly role. Yeah. I mean, he actually was taught by Gene Kelly when Gene Kelly was on the Muppet Show about go. dancing, so it would have to be him. Well, is Miss Piggy Lena or... Oh, man. Or this... both. I guess he would be cast for both, honestly. That's a good point. I, my first thought was she had to be the Debbie Reynolds, but like Miss Piggy as Lena is actually pretty hilarious. <laughs> It'd be perfect. <laughs> oh, I have to think about that. Maybe, maybe, the, hmm. Hmm, 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 hmm. Oh, man. I'll, I'll have to come back to that one. Do that's... we have a human somewhere or not? Or is it all Muppets? Um, I feel all Muppets. Okay. Well, Fozzie would have to be the Cosmo character, not Gonzo. No, because make him laugh. Yeah. I mean, it, just, yeah, it has to be. Yeah. It has to be. I mean, what, great, you have both of them. I mean, they could both, you could have two, you, you could know, change it's it. like a Christmas Carol when yeah. you have Marley and Marley. Although it seems like you would, well, I don't know, because maybe not Gonzo because you need a musical one of the That's musicians. True. I just to do keep it. seeing the ridiculous stuff. But yeah, you're okay. Yeah, probably Fozzie. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm kind of torn now. It might be fun to do a completely like a new character for the Debbie Reynolds or at least a newish character for, because there, there's not enough. I will admit, there's not enough female Muppets to go around. Yeah. Maybe we just do the whole thing and we maybe have... have bring, maybe bring in Skeeter. Everyone wants to see Skeeter turn into an actual Muppet. All right. Okay. Yes. I got questions for you because this for is it. going long. Yep. Sorry. No, you're fine. First one. Does the movie, within this movie, the dancing cavalier, does it make any sense? No. <laughs> and, no, but I think I think that's part of the humor is that they have this... this so, the dancing cavalier... So originally it was supposed to be the dueling cavalier, but it's when a, they change it to a musical, it has becomes a dancing. It was cavalier. A, histor- a historical romance during um, the French Revolution, uh-huh. and they had to change it so they have like this guy who goes to Broadway and is helping with this play and gets hit on the head and then dreams this French Revolution thing. But like, here's the funny thing about that to me: like the movie ends with them still in the dream. I, I know it's all that, <laughs> and I think honestly, I noticed that, and I think it's just part of the ridiculousness. I think. They got to switch it, and they just come up with a hair break. It's like a Muppet. I mean, seriously, it's a Muppet <laughs> idea. Like, uh-huh. we're just going to make this role. It doesn't make a lick of sense, but, but it's, it's not. But I don't think it's supposed to. I think it's part of that built-in, like, kind of making fun of how movies are sausages. You know, uh-huh. being, you don't want to see how it's made. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And the whole Broadway sequence we keep talking about is this, this pitch that Don Lockwood gives to the movie executive. Like, they go through this... For, for the beginning of the movie. For the beginning of the movie. showing how this character is going to show up at Broadway, and it goes through this long thing. And at the end of it, the movie executive goes, well, I can't quite picture it. <laughs> oh, they just see it. <laughs> because I can't imagine him explaining that. Because you just watch, like, 15 <laughs> minutes of him, like, dancing. Like, yeah. With a ballet sequence in the middle. Oh, like a really impressive dreams, ballet sequence, yeah. A dream sequence in the middle of this explanation. Yeah, it, it's something else. Okay, so my second question for yeah. you is, and I'd forgotten this until you mentioned it while we were watching it, that you actually spent some time tap dancing in, in school. I did. Not at school, but, like, I took classes here in Auburn, actually, yeah. Like when you were in elementary school? Or up through, high no, school? up, well, it was nine years, so. Nine years? Yeah. Okay, so here, here. I think nine, it was eight or nine, yeah. When was the last time you tap danced? Officially? Yeah. I mean, probably officially with actual tap shoes on, it probably would have been sometime in high school. Okay. But every once in a while, I'll go around shuffle ball changing, or I'll do various little movements, yeah. Okay, so my question is, if you were to reenact one of the dance sequences in this, which yeah. one would you want to do? Which one would I want to do? Oh, man, he's he's good at it. Um, I mean, dancing in the rain is always fun, don't get me wrong. Um, 
I don't know. The, for some reason, the Moses Supposes one sticks in mind. Okay. Just being like a lot of fun. And very zany. Stuff. Very zany. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do that one. Yeah. Okay. I was never near as cool or suave as Gene Kelly is. But. <laughs> well, he was one of the top of his craft. Yeah. Like, it's like him and Fred Astaire, at least as far as movie dancing goes. Yeah. They're at the very top. Verdict. Did we like the movie? Nah. No, don't watch it. <laughs> no. Seriously, no. We had a lot of fun. Of all this. the ones we've watched so far, say, if you're going to watch one, watch this one. Yeah. Would you say this one has probably the broadest appeal of any of the ones we've seen so far? Yes. Yes. Easily. Yeah. You don't even have to be a classic movie fan. You just have to like movies or things on screens. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, it probably helps if you if you enjoy musicals. Yeah. I mean, you don't like musicals. It's going to be a little rough, but I think... It might still win you over. Yeah, you might. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy the. Com- There's a lot of fun comedy yeah. lines or vaudeville, are, even. Yeah, vaudeville. The a lady gets a cake thrown in her face at some point. You know, that's, so it's 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 funny. It's got something for everyone. Yes. <laughs> so, is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's All right. Go and subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, etc. Our website is derailedtrainsofthought.com. You can find all of episodes of Let's Finally Watch This as well as our other podcasts there for you to enjoy. Next episode, episode five, we'll be jumping to 1962 to the epic Lawrence of Arabia. Arabia. So epic, we both had to say it at the same time. So stay tuned. So yeah, this is one that neither one of us has seen, and it's long overdue. Yeah. My, I have a running joke with my sister. We uh, She asks me, what is this movie about? And I told her, well, it's about this guy named Lawrence who lives in Arabia. Yes. <laughs> I think I've seen a scene somewhere, but that's it. Yeah. So, so It's said to be Steven Spielberg's favorite movie. Really? Yes. That's saying a lot, actually. So be looking forward to it, folks. All right. Well, until then, uh, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.